Hey, everybody. My name is Justin Murphy, and this is my podcast. It's called Other Life because it's where I talk about all the things I don't get to talk about in normal life. So if you're into it, you should definitely subscribe. And if you'd like to talk to other people interested in what I'm interested in, or ask me questions or request future topics or guests, please just follow the link in the show notes. Finally, I just want to give a huge thanks to all the donors and patrons. I could not keep this podcast running without financial backers, so I'm very grateful. And I would just say that if you enjoy this podcast or my blog or my videos, please do consider signing up to give a little bit of money each month. It would really help me grow out this project, and it would mean a lot to me. So thanks a lot. Now on to the podcast. Over and out. How are you doing today? All right. Yeah, I'm pretty good. I did a podcast earlier today with um, some Russian friends. So I've just been like talking all day, I guess. With Russian friends. Do you have a lot of Russian friends? Uh, not like a lot. It was just like a, a former Frog Twitter member who former. has a podcast now. Okay. Well, that's good. That, that gives us an immediate jumping off point because one of the first things I wanted to ask you is a little bit about your trajectory. Do you kind of come up mostly through Frog Twitter or what? Um, I, well, I think that's like how, uh, I went from being like a smaller account to like a bigger account, like in like 2015 was just getting invited into frog Twitter, which was like a, it was like great in 2015 is like, um, not a lot of the same people are left over, but a lot of the, the same. Um, so that was probably like how I went from small to bigger, but before that I was like more involved in like the NRX Twitter sphere or whatever. I've never really like subscribed to like any of like the dogmas. Like I was more along with like Compot, who I'm sure you probably remember was banned from tons of like NRX type things. So oh, it's right. just kind of like a sphere of like people just with um particular interests and things. Okay. And how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? Uh twenty four. Twenty four. Did you go to university or no? Yeah. Uh I went to school in New York for four years, studied Russian. Hmm. Was it uh, urban school or in the in in the state larger? Uh, urban in New York City. Okay. Uh, NYU or what? Where? Yeah, <laughs> I guess I'm gonna like yeah. I mean, I've said it before. I just don't like you know putting yeah, everything yeah. out all the time. But, yeah, no, cool. Um, I, I'm trying to. I always want to know people's stories, but I know people are sensitive about stuff, so I, I genuinely try not to pry too much either. So that's cool. Yeah, I cared more before. Like, I had a like organize someone like organized like a docs on me like November of last year, not that long ago, really. And mm-hmm. uh, it since then I've kind of cared a lot less, but like I still just have like you know like I like keeping my uh, pseudonymous shit kind of out of my life. Sure. Yeah, it's a reasonable strategy. When you you said that you got kind of big through Frog Twitter, but when did you first get on the internet uh, doing kind of you know purposeful, consistent intellectual work of any kind? Um, I mean, I was like, I was active on a lot of forums and stuff ever since I was a little kid. Like, I would just, I just loved the internet. Um, like fucking like game FAQs or whatever a long time ago, which had like literature forums like nested in there and stuff like that. Uh, just a lot of different types of forums. Um, I post on 4chan quite a bit, uh, but I got like, I mostly use Twitter for a long time. as kind of like a notebook just to like keep impressions down. And uh, then eventually I transformed it more into like a, uh, like more purposeful enterprise. Once I started like talking with people that I was interested in. Right. Okay. Interesting. And, 
you identify mostly as a right wing kind of dude. Is that right? Uh, I don't know, like sort of, I feel like I'm more identified as that than I would like proactively, you know what I mean? And I sort okay, of sure. like, well, if, if everyone's going to like say that, like whatever, like, I don't really think it's that bad of a thing. I think mostly it comes from like, like I was always on the left growing up, like historically, um, it was mostly um, later, I guess, as I sort of got more into like Christianity and a lot of other things are like, um, not really considering like all conservative ideas to be like totally evil or whatever you know that um i got more and more labeled as being like right wing very swiftly i suppose but i don't know people have a hard time discerning like the differences between like you know in the horseshoe theory thing like who's left and who's right you know right so i have to be honest with you that i don't i don't actually follow twitter that much and my understanding is that's kind of where you're most active so i know very little about kind of what you think or or, or what you say maybe could you tell us very broadly what are the topics or, 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 or themes or points that you, you tend to be most interested in that you, that your kind of internet writing revolves around and that people know you for? Um, a lot of like a lot, it's like a kind of mixed bag, but I think that the major things that are probably not as much in like other people's uh, shit posting or whatever is uh, my emphasis on like media ecology, like things like Marshall McLuhan and like literary criticism generally of like, the 20 and like the 20th century literature most especially i think okay um stuff like Wyndham lewis like i'm mostly like trying to get people to read like these neglected authors who i think have a lot to say about the present or you know they said <laughs> or it bears upon the times right right um by the way some people are saying that you sound kind of soft if you could speak up a little louder into the phone and- oh, okay sorry also, yeah, people are saying it kind of sounds like you're going in and out. If you could just kind of keep the phone at a, a consistent distance and speak up well into it. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, I've, I don't have great equipment. Yeah, no, no worries. You sound, you sound fine. It's perfectly fine. So, uh, yeah, Wyndham Lewis is an interesting cat. I listened to a video on uh, a talk on YouTube recently about Wyndham Lewis. It was by Jonathan Bowden, who I think is like a pretty fascist dude. Uh, so I'm not I, like, a, I'm, I'm just, you know, not endorsing anything. I'm just sharing that I. Uh, listen to it. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, I don't know too much about Wyndham Lewis, but uh, I was also talking to DC Miller and DC Miller is quite into Wyndham Lewis. Uh, you know much about Wyndham Lewis? You want to drop some knowledge bombs on me? Yeah. I mean, uh, I wanted to go into something more about with like Jonathan Bowden before mm. that. Um, yeah. But because like, that was actually how I was introduced to Wyndham Lewis was like that. Um, oh, that same but, video that I'm talking about. Yeah. Like I found, I was looking for like, I was very much trying to find like tons of uh, like, information on things like you know lectures and stuff uh way back in the day like that was a long like maybe like five years ago at this point when i i stumbled upon like jonathan bowden lectures because i was reading a lot of spengler and i was reading spengler out of like a uh, like mythological sort of view right like uh like tons of people like reading joseph campbell and stuff were like referencing spengler and i was like well i should probably read spengler like you know i don't know why i haven't heard of this before like it had never come up in anything I was reading before. So I got really into that. And then I was looking for lectures on stuff like that and found a lot of what has been deemed like super far right stuff, right? Like things like Evola and all that became like, would pop up in, in, in line with that. So I ended up reading that stuff as well. But, um, I would say like Jonathan Bowden has a pretty bad, uh, understanding, or at least he's, he's, uh, curating a pretty short, um, list of Wyndham Lewis's works, um, kind of like emphasizing towards like the crowd that he's pitching to, but 
because Wyndham Lewis is often referred to as like a very far right figure, but he's really not. If you read like the entirety of his works, especially the later ones, he was just someone who like was changing his mind as like the times unfolded, you know, his like, it's kind of wrong to read any of his works just pulled from isolation without like seeing them in like the, the development of his thought because he's like exploring questions. So that like, uh, for instance, like when, uh, the, like he was like very anti-war, which was his main thing. Cause he went to world war one and he thought it would be horrible if, uh, Europe went to war with itself again. So with the initial rise of the Nazis, he wrote a book saying like, let's not like go to war over this or whatever. But then much later when it got worse, he wrote like a revision to that called like the Hitler cult and how it will end. Whereas most people only place emphasis on the first book, right? And he became kind of tarred as a uh, Nazi apologist, right? Well, so like, how bad? How bad was he? Like, how fascist was he? Uh, I don't think very. Like, he's he's kind of he like almost all. If you read his first novel, Tar, it has a character which is like almost a complete uh, prediction of Adolf Hitler. It's like a failed German like artist, like living mm-hmm. in the slums, who like goes on like a violent rampage. So I don't really know. um, This is like the tough thing, right? With like these terms like far right or like fascism is that people will use them in vastly different ways and like imply certain things like entail certain conclusions. So like because he was skeptical of like maybe perhaps like liberalism or some other things that would go align along with that, people like put him in that camp. But he, he, he like made fun of Ezra Pound for going further than he did right with like Ezra Pound doing the like very ardently fascist radio broadcast from Italy that was, he never went that far so I don't really know where to place him on the spectrum he's more he's cl- almost like an anarchist really like right right interesting um that reminds me you just mentioned Pound uh one of my readers asked me to ask you about something you said recently to Moldbug or about Moldbug about, you know, you, you thought you cracked some sort of puzzle that Moldbug put out and it had something to do with pounds. Could you explain that? Oh, okay. I, I can't remember the exact names I would use to tie this together, but it was like Moldbug's um, like saying like goodbye to Urbit. Cause I think he stepped down. Right. Uh-huh. He uh, gave some references to, for some things to read. And um, those sorts, one of them is like a poem that's written, that was written as a, on a like dedicated, dedicatory page on a copy of the cantos i'm trying to remember that the writer he's like a very like underrated modernist poet um can't remember his name off the top of my head but i was just like trying to to like follow the lines in from the uh, things that he was referencing and, like what they had in common oh, okay cool i didn't even say it i just wanted to uh, ask that question for my buddy. yeah um, yeah you could probably find that on my if you, uh, i don't know what the search terms you'd want to find but whoever asked that or whatever um yeah, yeah someone probably find, find that Someone just linked. You find that somehow on mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's all I was really trying to do. Someone wanted to know. Uh, someone wanted to ask, like, were you, did you were you like drinking with Moldbug or something? Yeah, uh, Compot and I did once when he was in New York with some other people. Um, I was at the Urbit office when I was in SF not too long ago. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just like I try to meet up with people who like know me or whatever because I just like talking to people and seeing like what kind of people have been reading me. It was pretty surreal to like. Uh, I was like signing copies of my book. Like I've never done something like that before. So, oh, was it recently? Yeah, yeah, it was like a week or two ago. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's all. I actually just did a my first kind of like book talk. I guess you could call it for a, a book that isn't even out yet. <laughs> uh, 
but that's kind of what's so cool about this like all this independent internet shit is you just kind of do everything you want uh, yourself and do it however you want you you can do a book talk without even having a book done yet <laughs> i mean that's really like the crux of like my ideology i guess if there is one is that um i was mostly interested in like i was like involved in like the underground music scene and stuff like growing up oh no shit and, no shit when yeah, were, so like when you were a lefty yeah, well, I, I was never really, like, a hardcore lefty, but I was more of, like, I'm just, like, like I'm more of, like, an individualist, I guess, you know, like, like yeah. I like Sterner and stuff, so, like, that kind of, you kind of have things in common with a bunch of people all over yeah. the political spectrum, um, but, like, never all of it at the same time. Um, right. So, yeah, I just was mostly interested in, like, you know, like, punk music or, like, not having to, like, you know, like, these people, like, making their own networks of culture as opposed to, like, you know, the uh, standard corporate products and whatnot yeah definitely i mean i'm the same i i basically have the same story like when i was in uh undergrad and, and grad school also i was like deep in the diy music scene in in philly and uh so all my friends oh philly yeah yeah why were you through there at all well i just know like i knew like they had a lot of good like um really hardcore punk band stuff out of philly yeah. Yeah. Um, more of like the metalcore stuff. Like that's what like I grew up in Western Mass and that's like every local band is a metalcore band. I think it okay. still is, surprisingly. Okay. Yeah, right on, right on. Uh, my point is, though, it's funny that you mentioned it because, yeah, I have the same story in that I I have this kind of years and years of just being socialized into DIY punk rock kind of music culture. And then when I got into academia, everything like moves so fucking slow. And it's mostly you're mostly just burning time waiting for someone to approve of something, you know? And like the, the culture that I, I, I kind of came up in was all about like not asking permission, not waiting, just kind of doing everything yourself and doing whatever you want. So it was a, a particularly kind of painful contrast. And, and it was because of that background in kind of DIY music shit that I have, I eventually kind of just blew a gasket and was like, this is just not worth it anymore. Like, I don't know why anyone's waiting around for permission from anyone when, you know, the time it's never been easier and, you know, uh, more convenient and more effective to just do things yourself. So yeah, that's why I'm very, um, you know, glad to see you doing things like, you know, writing your own books and publishing them yourselves. And I'm glad to see lots of people doing that more and more. Yeah. Uh, I feel like, uh, we probably would have had similar life trajectories had I like actually decided to go to grad school, but like, I just got so, uh, I mean, like, so immiserated with the idea of it by like going through even just like my undergrad and like knowing grad students like i took some grad courses in undergrad and they were all like don't do this man <laughs> like they were all like don't follow down this path so I yeah decided to just go for it on my own yeah yeah and good for and good for you you know I, I don't regret i consider doing that also i don't regret going the path that i went because i didn't gain a lot from it uh but i definitely burned a lot of time you know because it turned out to basically suck as a lifestyle. And now I'm essentially, uh, you know, how, how do I put this? Like, well, you have your first book out before I do and you're 24 years old. So that's awesome. That's, that's a, you, you're going to see more and more people look at that and be like, you know, uh, do I want to be like Justin and waste uh, 10 years, uh, you know, climbing the ranks of like the prestige hierarchy, even if I'm successful Turns out, you know, someone like Justin doesn't even want to be there ultimately um, when I could, you know, am I going to do that or uh, should I just do like what Logo Dedulous and, and company are doing and uh, just publish, you know, learn what I need to learn, gain the skills I need to gain to uh, do the work that I want to do 
and then just publish it myself. I, I think it's, it's a, it's a really beautiful thing. And uh, yeah. So, so I applaud, I applaud you and all the people who are just getting after it. And that's basically what I'm doing. Yeah. Now. That's basically what I'm doing I mean, now too. I just uh, yeah. I, I took a roundabout route. I think like, it's a big problem, especially uh, with like literature or like literary cultures in America, mm-hmm. like that, the sort of like MFA cult and stuff where like, there's just this like captive, um, like really boring literature that is like only read by people who workshop, et cetera. And it's just like this feedback loop mm-hmm. where it, it just totally diverts um, any sort of real, like interesting new things happening. So yeah, I'm just like all about uh, trying to like make, make a better patchwork, right. But patchwork culture sort of. Yeah. Right on. That's, it's just really fascinating to learn that you also have a background in DIY music stuff because I never, it never occurred to me that that could maybe be a, a tributary feeding into this kind of internet culture that you and I are kind of uh, uh, on different wings of. Uh, it never occurred well, to, to me. Give you a, yeah. To give you a good pitch for Wyndham Lewis, right, that might interest you on this sort of level hmm. is um, you, like a big, probably the most, the biggest influence on like the punks and whatnot. Hmm. I would argue more so than even like Velvet Underground was like stuff like Captain Beefheart and like Frank Zappa. Right. At, in like the 60s, um, uh, especially Beefheart. But Beefheart was a huge reader of Wyndham Lewis, like w- great fan of Wyndham Lewis. Wyndham Lewis, I think, could arguably be, arguably be like the first punk like in history. Um, his uh, book Blast was like a like anarchist zine almost. It has like the same um, like cut out letters and sort of right. look to it. If you look at it, it'll remind you of reading like punk scenes. Right, right. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a good point. That's that. I never, I never really made that connection either. Someone wants to know if you have any, uh, if you can leak any juicy gossip about Contbot's book. I, I have none. I know. I don't want to leak like saying which one it is. Like we've talked about several. I've talked to him about at least a couple of different ideas he's had. I don't know which one he's gone with or like what type of book. So I'm not. I, I really don't have anything to leak. I wouldn't want to like completely well, go bonkers. Well, you could tell you could tell us one or two of the ideas. It'll be no, good. No, no. See, I'm not going to share it. Low, like that's his. That's his. Uh, that's his IP. You know, he's got to capitalize on that. I want him to write them. So right, but, but you, them now. you could drop a, a few kind of uh, curious nuggets, if you will. Uh, it'd be good well, for his publicity. You know. Well, I don't know if it's fiction or not. Is the main thing. Like, I don't know if what he's writing is fiction or not. I also know that he had an idea for like a graphic novel that he was working with someone else with. I don't know if that ever came to fruition. But I don't know which one it is. I'm 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 waiting just as everyone else is to see. What Interesting. It is. Interesting. Well, this is a good opportunity to just start talking about your book. Tell me about your book. I don't know anything about it. It's fiction. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. It's like a novel. Um, it's called Selfie Suicide or Carrie Turnbull's Blue Skidoo. Uh, the last part was the title I would go with if it wouldn't be like totally impossible to pass around. Uh, but uh, it has like a thematic meaning like in the book, which will make more sense if you read it. But it's basically a satire with a lot of different um, styles going on it. So uh, each chapter is very different from the other ones, but it takes place in like a sort of very short period of time at a parody of a contemporary art museum called the Museum of Expressive Humanism. And it's about a the protagonist is like a failed a failed artist like uh trying to, like going on a Tinder date after like a mental breakdown at the uh, Museum of Expressive Humanism. It kind of explodes from there. That's like the introductory pitch. It's about much more than that, and uh, I, I I it's I, 
I hope it's surprising, really. Like by the third chapter, it starts to really uh, blow up. Okay. Who are your kind of key influences literarily? Um, I have like it's hard to like shorten it because like I'm influenced by like everything I've read, you know, or like tons of other things, other media. But particularly, I think for this one, uh, Vytold Gombrovich, um, Nabokov, uh, Nicholson Baker. I was very much um, influenced by reading the mezzanine, and um, uh, yeah, those are the ones that I listed when I was saying like the three biggest influences on this book. I think probably like other stuff like magic realism type stuff, but that's more of like less uh, stylistically more uh, how the world works or whatever. I don't know how to differentiate certain terms that I would use in like my private language of literary criticism or whatever. Okay, cool. That's cool. Uh, well, we'll talk about the book on and off. We'll kind of return to it, I'm sure. And by the way, I'll say up front that uh, there's a link to the Amazon page in the description of this video. So if anyone wants to check it out, it's right there for you. Someone is saying to me, yeah, someone is saying that uh, you were once going to possibly be moving to Texas. Uh, what happened to that? Someone wanted to know. Oh, I've been living in Texas for a while. I've, I love it here. It's great. Oh, really? So Austin or what? Uh, Dallas. Yeah. Interesting. What do you love about it? Uh, it's really nice and boring and everything's cheap and it's just nice to live in. I have a washing machine and a dryer and a dishwasher. And I had none of those things when I was living in New York. I had cockroaches and my apartment getting lit on fire and horrible things. Yeah. New York's like one of the most overrated places ever. All the big, all the big famous cities are just overrated. I think in my opinion. I feel like uh, I was calling SF uh, New York City for pussies, and I think that's pretty accurate. It has, like, all the stuff that you would like in New York City, but it's, like, a lot cleaner. I guess they have more of, like, like homeless people, like, being aggressive, I guess, is the only th- difference. Yeah. People shooting up on the sidewalk and, like, throwing poop. Yeah, that's Literal amazing. Poop. It's amazing how it's such a unique and specific thing that everyone always comments on when they go there. Like, to- it's such a it's such a bizarre feature that the, that their homeless population is particularly aggressive and crazy. Yeah, I think they like. I don't know. I don't know why it is, but I think it's because it's. I don't know. They just must not have like as much of like a fascist police force. It's very fascinating. I noticed that too when I was there. Um, right. Okay. Great. So, uh, this is your first book, is that right? Yeah, it's the first one I published. And how how have you found the Amazon publishing process? Um, it was nice because, like, I have, like, limited means to, like, put together a book. Like, ideally, I would want to, like, do it all by myself. But uh, right. it's, like, very easy to do. And the uh, profit margins are much better than you'd be offered at, like, a small publisher um, right. royalty-wise. So right, right. I, I love it. I'm glad that I have, like, it, I don't know. I don't know how else you would go about publishing something these days. Did you, like, pay to have anyone help you at all? Or did you just do everything by yourself? I just did it all by myself. I had a like, friend even read it or what? Yeah, I had a I had a bunch of test readers right. prior, like people online and people I know in real life. So yeah, it, it wasn't all like me, but uh, I wanted to make sure that like people liked it before I put it out. You know? Yeah, sure, sure. So how many copies sold so far? Um, I'm over two hundred. I'm, I think maybe over 250. I don't know. I haven't really been keeping track of the exact numbers, but nice. uh, it's way more. Apparently, the average book sells like 28 copies or something on Amazon. So it's doing a lot better than that. 
Yeah, I, I try to keep uh, keep it in perspective of like really old books. Like I think Ezra Pound's first book had 150 copies total. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I think I just tweeted like a few months ago something about, uh, I forget which of his books, but one of Nietzsche's books that he basically, you know, like, as you know, probably many kind of radical writers throughout history did basically what we would now call self-publishing, uh, where they basically just cough up the money for a private print run. Nietzsche did Nietzsche did one. I forget which book I, I saw about, but it was something like, I think, 250 copies or something like that. Maybe, yeah, maybe yeah. More. Uh, and even like uh, Melville's Moby Dick sold, I think, a total of like 500 copies or something absurdly small because yeah. it got panned like universally. So I don't yeah. know. I'm trying to I'm glad I'm, I'm making pretty decent money off of it, though. So that's nice. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Uh, no, that, that's good. That's good to hear. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, it's, it's funny with Internet things because it's all power laws, right? And power laws are strange because when you, when you have that kind of curve, it, it's like actually if you're at all competent, it's quite easy to beat the average. But then you're like light years away from from the, uh, you know, like the highest performers. Uh, but it, it, power laws are actually really cool because, yeah, it's hard to describe, but it's like um, as long as you can get past kind of like the lower edge of the curve, as long as you're like above average, um, then like every bit of gain uh you know, it is like, it's quite a lot. So like that's for 250 for the first few weeks of your first book um, are like, that's really good. And if you, if the next time around you're even a little bit better, um, you know, you can easily see how that, how that adds up over time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say that like the heart, the hardest milestone on like Twitter to get to is like a thousand followers. And then after that, it kind of grows on its own. Yeah, it's that's kind of, that works. Yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at. It's it's the it's it's going from zero to something. That's the hardest part. But once you're at something, even if it's really low, um, in a weird way, uh, it it, it kind of gets easier. It kind of gets easier. It's it's hard to describe because it's these power laws. It's are the Matthew simple. principle. Yeah, exactly. That's the, that's the power law. Um, it's just it it it's like all things involving kind of like exponential curves. It's just um, it's very it's very not intuitive. You know, like the the dynamics are not exactly what you would expect because we tend to think in linear ways. Like our intuitions tend to be linear. Um, so it's yeah, it's just kind of interesting to reflect on. I don't have anything particularly profound to say about it. So yeah, uh, I yeah yeah. yeah. Go on. I, I would only say like um, I know other people like who like I was involved in like the literary scene to a certain degree in New York. So like some of my like friends from school like had things published in small presses and stuff. But they sold like much less, like there were even smaller printings. And like, I don't think it really drove up. Like a lot of people do that, you know, like, so it's not even that unique of a thing to have a small press book run. Right. Um, That's right. Because, so because like, you know, you could like, you could literally do it on Amazon and then it's like a mass press book run, but uh, or made to order one or whatever. So yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't I don't really understand why a lot of people are going for the old ways of doing things now because it doesn't really seem to give you a competitive advantage. Right. Yeah, no, it doesn't. I, I've talked about this a little bit on, on the stream before because um, I actually do have a proper literary agent and I, a kind of half finished book that, I, you know, put in all the patience and hard work into uh, making it like, you know, saleable and uh, polished and everything like that. And it's just kind of like been the same as my experience with academia just you spend so much time basically 
making edits for all these different people and then waiting for people to sign off of, on it and then waiting for other people to to approve of it. And, uh, you know, the publishing industry is, a spe- is, is kind of especially grotesque in that regard because you're asking a publisher to approve of it. But not only are you asking the publisher, you also have to get an agent to get the to get the the publisher. So it's like it's layers and la- it's multiple layers of middlemen that aren't even necessary. Um, but as someone who's going through it, um, I can answer your question about you know you were saying why, you don't even know why people do it anymore. And I think it's I think it's pretty clear that the reason people do it is because we're still kind of glued into these like prestige hierarchies, and we imagine yeah that yeah yeah we, yeah you know like we we imagine that it matters, and we imagine that. Oh, no one will take me seriously if I don't have random houses approval or something like this. Um, and I think that just that's a perception that dies hard. And I'm, I'm, you know, admitting this to myself uh, more more so than blaming anyone else for it. Um, but the the fact is that it's it's just oh, it's gone away. Like I've as the more I've looked into the data, uh, and I've done a lot of research in this in the past because I've I've found that the the process of getting an agent and get and going that route to be just like academia, extremely kind of. Uh, frustrating and unnecessary and and kind of annoying and it doesn't even really add that much value uh i because of that i've been doing all this research into it and and i'm i'm almost at the point where i basically like kind of wish i didn't even bother and that i just published it from the get-go by myself because um you know the only the only real reason that you would go through a publisher the only thing it can really give you that self-publishing can't is if you're in the kind of tiny outlier class where they choose to make you like a mega a mega million, you know, seller or whatever. Yeah. It's, um, a, it's purely yeah. for advertising funds. Like, yeah. That's all they really have for you. And then the, the cut that you would take in royalties for that, I don't know if it's really worth. Well, the thing, the thing is though, that the average author, um, even at like a top publisher doesn't even get much advertising or marketing spend at all. It's only like the, the Oh yeah. It's the tiny minority of people that they select to be like their superstars. Um, you know, that they'll put in like the, They'll, they'll, they'll ensure that it goes in like the front window of all the Barnes and Noble and all that kind of shit. Um, so if you break into that class, then yeah, a, a big publisher is going to be much better than going self self published. But even if you're like a good prestigious author in the normal class of uh, like a big top five publisher, it in, in that case and in almost across the board, you do better by self publishing right now if you look across the data. And so yeah, I'm kind that of makes sense to me. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I only learned this when I was like halfway through the process of of getting an agent. And now that I'm now that I'm kind of in that process, I'm sort of just like, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I realized that I only did it based out of a kind of bullshit, egotistical um, kind of like desire for prestige and approval. And, and ultimately, it's insecurity, you know, like ultimately at the bottom of it is is one's own kind of ego anxiety yeah. and insecurity. Like that's really what drove me to go that route. Now that I'm looking at the data, I'm just like. And now that my ego is like, I guess, more secure, I'm more mature or something. I don't know, whatever you want to call it. I'm just sort of like, fuck it, let's go all in on radical internet independence. And that's basically that's basically what I'm doing now. Yeah, man. I made that decision like when I was still like a dumb teenager to a certain degree, you know? So I felt more like anxieties of like, am I like a total idiot for doing this? You know what I mean? Like, right. if, am I wasting my time? But I feel like it's uh, been paying off. So I'm like pretty pleased with it. Yeah, awesome, keep the momentum going. Yeah, definitely. I think we're at a place where ultimately, like everyone is just going to fall to their level. You know, like you're gonna, people are basically going to pan out uh, at whatever their like true kind of quality is. You know, like whether you have a big five publisher or not, or you go independent or whatever. The internet is kind of this amazing thing where 
you know, if you have quality, if you have value, it's going to rise to the top eventually. Maybe it'll take longer or shorter in different paths or whatever. But, uh, you know, people will mostly kind of, uh, mostly people will pan out at at the level that they, that they are objectively uh, kind of able to. Yeah. I don't know if it's like a perfect meritocracy type thing, but it it certainly is more climbable, I think. But I feel like it's just true of like any new medium. There's like these uh, new affordances that are there before it gets like closed in and totally regulated that people can take advantage of. But I think that they're constantly closing like behind you. Like, I feel like the best time to like start being a YouTuber or whatever was probably like seven years ago. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think there's, I think there's some truth to that also, but I think people overestimate that also. People always think that it's like too late. My sense, honestly, is that this shit has only just begun, you know, like the, oh yeah, you know what I mean? Like YouTube is still mostly like the average YouTuber is still a kind of like quite low quality kind of idiot. And uh, so, yeah, there are first mover advantages, but it's still wide open. And this stuff is only, the stuff is not even close to to saturation points with, with respect to like the culture, especially if you look at things like people's willingness to pay for like independent digital products, like that's only just begun. Also, people are not yet comfortable with it. They're becoming more and more comfortable with it every year, but we're not even close to saturation. So all these things are still only in their early phases. It's only going to become more and more um, success in these sorts of ventures is only going to become more and more widely available, I think, despite what a lot of people imagine, like, oh, YouTube's, YouTube's, you know, you're, you're, it's too, it's too late to get in on this sort of stuff. Yeah, I, the issue is that we're still like I'm like a media ecology type guy, but we're right currently. I feel like a proper way to look at a lot of what's happening in the Western world is like a fight between these mediums because you see the old like conglomerates around like television and radio and stuff that have built up and newspapers even like very much struggling to adapt with like basically just like random people with phones. Right, right. So I've been ranting a bit. I want to kind of ask some questions from the audience. One question is. Um, it's kind of general. You can go in any direction you want with this, but uh, what's your take on being young men in this day and age? Uh, I think it sucks pretty hard. Uh, oh, sorry, I'm drooling. Um, <laughs> I think it sucks pretty hard uh, for a lot of reasons, and like probably the biggest reason is that uh, um, you're not allowed to. You're like you're you're a class that's considered like to be above, like to have like no complaints or like no license to complain about anything mm. is essentially like the the major idea i think that drives a lot of that is driving like radicalization uh, if you're gonna call i don't even know like what it means to be like radicalized at this point because almost everyone's like a fringe conspiracy loony about well, i guess you mean like mass shooters yeah yeah well or like you know anything like that anyone who's like gets totally absorbed by a sort of ideology of like the, the like the alt-right or whatever the hell people want to call it um I think it's mostly because like there's no outlet to discuss these things or to have like your grievances be considered valid in any sort of degree. Um, Even though like it's probably like comparatively like to the past, like it's like a very bad time for young white men, particularly like doing very poorly by almost like all metrics Mm. and, and the way that that's generally given back, like the ideological answer is that like, Oh, so like your, your privileges are being taken away as if like, have it like as if like these like you know you're the privilege of like not committing suicide at like high rates or you know things like that as if that's what this privilege rhetoric means so it turns people like you know i feel like reasonably against that and then 
they have like no place in generally what was the old left to make any sort of grievances heard or to even be treated like an equal in a certain degree. Like you're always suspect um, or you always have something that can be like you, like in the progressive stack, you're like the lowest on the, uh, on the credibility spectrum. Yeah. See, you know, I actually kind of think that that's what a weird thing about that is it's actually ends up being a kind of advantage for men because it's good to not complain. It's better if you can avoid complaining, uh, you know, if, in a culture where you're allowed to complain a lot and where it's even encouraged to complain, that just kind of breeds all kinds of, you know, pathologies and weaknesses. And, uh, you know, I think people, sure. okay. think people should I'll tell be you the difference. What's that? I'll tell you the difference. Right. So Marshall McLuhan said like, what do you think like the room, the root of like humor is? Are you asking me? Yeah. Where would you say like it comes from? I don't have a deep take on humor, but my one hypothesis would be, I think there's a theory about surprise, right? Well, that's like about the structure of jokes, right? Like that's like the rule of three type things in like okay. folklore, but like the more like emotional one. Um, like psychological well, motivation. Well, I guess, I guess I, I'm, I'm partial to the Nietzsche and Bataille perspective that uh, there's an association between laughter and truth. Yeah, I think that that's true. But I would say that like the cycle, like why would you want someone to to like express like a truth? Basically, like if you make someone laugh with a joke, right? It's as if you've expressed like an undeniable truth, like to the point where they have like an instinctive reaction to it, right? Right. So I feel like what a lot of humor comes out of is like grievances. Mm-hmm. So when you, so that's why like he, the people have mostly complained that like this sort of thing has like ruined humor because like humor is like the outlet where these grievances are like heard as opposed to like being whined about. They're like joked about, or they're like made to make certain things seem ridiculous. Like the contradictions in uh, the way certain structures work. So you're saying that because people are able to complain, they're not able to make jokes. No, no, no. I'm saying that like, because they're not allowed to make jokes anymore, Uh, they have to channel that grievance into other like, uh, like things. Right. Like, so you have, um, or like, you know, like that, that audience, like you seek out like an audience that was, uh, agree, like find that funny. You know what I mean? Right. Right. I see what you're, I see what you mean. I mean, I think what I, what I was getting at before was just to say that, uh, in a weird way, this kind of culture of, of grievance and culture of complaint actually has a, a tendency to do the most harm to the subpopulations that are most encouraged and uh, and empowered to complain. In other words, you know, I, I think there's a lot of truth to what you're saying that in contemporary culture, white men are sort of, you know, expected to not complain. Uh, but in, in a, in a really bitter and perverse kind of irony in my, in my experience and observation this actually has a weird effect of actually making white men uh potentially more robust (laughs) uh so i yeah i guess so but it it, but i don't really know if that's like exactly true because i feel like there's like a myth that like you know there's a sort of like stoicism you know that yeah like but because i think it just ends up being like like push into like the subconscious essentially comes out in other ways. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a fine, that's a fine point. I mean, one thing I've definitely agreed with before is that, I mean, I have no interest in like white race shit, but um, like you can only have a culture where like 
ethnically driven political uh, grievances and, and ethnic political mobilization is kind of uh, lionized and encouraged. And, you know, every, everyone is kind of uh, falling over themselves to kind of signal solidarity with basically uh, ethnically driven uh, grievances and resource claims. <laughs> you can only have that for so long before, like, of course, some fucking white people are going to start trying to play that game. I mean, I'm just like utterly unsurprised that that's happening. And when people are, you know, so like shocked and horrified by it, I mean, I have no taste for it whatsoever, but I'm not surprised or, or very shocked by it either. Yeah. I was saying that like back in 2014, I remember I was drinking with a a professor of mine who was a Zoroastrian. He was raised a Zoroastrian, which is just like, which is why I wanted to get drinks with him. I was like, what, talking about that, but we were talking about this sort of issue, right? With like, um, he was leaving academia in order to like teach at private schools, and he, we were talking about like like the social justice type things and like these sorts of obsessions and uh, uh, with like uh, like race and colonial discourses instead of like even instead of like even economic ones or like Marxist ones, like class based stuff. And I was saying that, like, I was like, in a few years, you're going to have, like, suburban white kids, like, doing Hall Hitlers. And he was like, no. And I was like, I'm just telling you that this is what's going to happen. Like, I can see it forming, like, already. And lo and behold. And do you see that as just kind of uh, some somewhat non-ideological edgelording? A lot of it, yeah. I think a lot of it is, uh, like, much more of that than people, like, give credence to. Because yeah. they just think that, like, how could you joke about something so despicable? It's like, well... Like, people have been joking about that shit for, like, ever, you know? Like, it's just kind of, like, an edgy thing to do. Like, people have been... Like, the the punks were fucking using Nazi imagery to piss people off, like, forever. Everyone has deployed that sort of shit as a shock tactic. It always works. But, like... um, So I wasn't really that surprised. I think a lot of it's edgelording. I think a lot of it is edgelording that turns, like, into sincere posting. Um, Were you... Were you into Donald Trump? I think that, uh, like, I, I, I just, like, sort of try to see it from, like, a, as, again, like, a media ecology perspective, like, right. um, because, like, well, I absolutely hate, hated, like, the neo-lib options there. Like, I remember in 2014, like, same year, like, looking at it at the future, and I was like, the future is, like, Clinton-Bush, like, two boots, like, stomping on the human face forever. It'll go Clinton-Bush, Clinton-Bush, Clinton-Bush forever, and that's the future. And I was like, we're going to invade Syria and, like, all these things. And I was like, it looks really bleak. And then I just saw the, I saw Donald Trump speak and I was like, he was going to be president. Like something just like struck me in my mind. And I, it was like in 2015, like in February when he announced and I was like, this is just going to happen. And I was like telling people and I was just like, I wasn't even really being that ironic about it, but I was just like, I think he's going to be president. Like it just makes total sense. Like I've kind of had like a, a vision of him as president. And I was like, yes, this is the country we live in. We'll absolutely have Donald Trump as president. It's not even a question. And no one believed me forever, but I, I don't know. I kind of just like saw it written. It, it makes total sense to me for a lot of reasons at the time. I also think it was better than having a Hillary presidency. So, so did you vote for Trump? No, I, I haven't voted it ever. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll probably um, vote for Yang though. I'll vote for Yang. That's the only ca- candidate I would ever vote for. So you're, you're full on Yang gang. Is that right? Absolutely. I, I have the same sort of feeling about him. Honestly, I think that the, the idea of like a UBI as like a, is like, so um, I, I felt like it was inevitable, right. That this sort of thing was going to come down the line, but 
I think that it's like literally like you can't argue against it. Like once you have people thinking about what they do with a thousand dollars every month, yeah, they're already sold. And it's like, you're like, they're going to vote for that. Right. Right. (laughs) I, I was saying before you got on that, I'm basically kind of on the fence about it. I mean, my basic attitude towards electoral politics is I'm not interested in any of it. I'm kind of like you, I have voted before, but my, my stance is kind of like the one you just described in that. Um, I did not vote in the last election. I think I did not vote in the one before I forget, but uh, yeah, I just see all of electoral politics as, as mostly useless. I mean, I think the presidency is uh, vastly overestimated and, it, and it's kind of, uh, you know, real power, yeah, yeah power and, and effective and effectiveness and significance. It's mostly a kind of symbolic uh, contest. And, uh, you know, even in the political science literature, there's this idea that, uh, it's not actually rational to vote. And, the, and one good reason why people vote, one way to make sense out of it, is that you're basically just getting a kind of expressive value. You know, you're 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 saying, you know, yeah, you're, it's saying, you're saying you participate, you're saying, you're, you know, you're an educated uh, member of society that you have opinions. You know, it's basically all these types of sig- signaling and expressive values. And uh, I don't have any interest in, you know, signaling anything really about you know, contemporary macro politics. So uh, I, yeah, but I, Yang, I, I have nothing to, to do with it. But if you vote for Yang, yeah. though, you get a thousand dollars a month. So well, here's the interesting, right? Here's the interesting thing, though, that has me thinking about Yang. So basically, I mean, I've been more or less kind of uh, withdrawn from electoral politics because I think it's all mostly a waste of time. But I am very interested in mimetic politics you know i'm extremely interested and actually quite uh bullish on the the latent powers of of people on the internet to rapidly organize and challenge kind of status quo institutions that's something that i'm obviously quite partial to and and i do tend to be quite bullish on so when i see when i saw the yang yang thing take off first of all i was surprised i i wasn't expecting it so surprise is always interesting and um you know, I think I, there's just something so delectable about the the same mobs that you know claim to have memed Trump into the presidency. That the same the same mobs are now trying to meme Andrew Yang into pre- into the presidency, and Yang is such a different type of character uh, that I just find something so delectable about that that I'm 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 kind of half a mind to go Yang Gang just to kind of throw my support behind the idea uh, of this being possible. Yeah, I, I I made a tweet. Someone will probably link it, but I like was putting the years of the election cycle tied to like the hero's journey plot. So I would say that like almost after like the Trump election, right, is like basically like are residing in like the underworld, like in like the darkness. And um, th- I feel like that like Yang actually represents a sort of um, uh, like reconciliation or whatever with like a whole class of people who have um pretty much like rejected the uh, old ways of doing things. You don't like have the to... Overton's window. Right. Is, like, right. Totally shattered now. You don't have to run at eight right now. Do you? Uh, no, I can go for like another half hour. Okay. Perfect. Um, so yeah, yeah. It's very interesting. I'm, I'm very intrigued by this. Um, I, I wonder if, just because Andrew Yang is, well, first of all, he's so different than Donald Trump. He's like this, you know, very mild mannered, very rational, calm, uh, Asian man, which is just hilarious. But what he's I'm like heard, the nerd. Yeah. Yeah. And what I'm really wondering is it, 
if all the alt-right people really go Yang Gang, will it create interesting problems for the left that might otherwise be quite partial to getting a thousand dollars a month? You know, it's an obviously attractive kind of redistributive policy. I wonder if I, I'm curious to see how it would play out on the left. Like, would people say, "Oh, you can't support Yang because that's the alt-right guy"? I wonder. It's already happening. I mean, they're basically saying that he's like a libertarian, neoliberal centrist, but their entire policy is based off of like, well, we need it so that like poor people are still miserable for longer so that we can have the revolution. <laughs> wow. So like it's already happening based like across that. I remember I think Chapo and like all the kind of like the what are like the left guys or whatever have had like more uh, negative takes on it recently but i think they'll eventually have to come around i really don't see bernie becoming president i don't think it's even closely mimetically possible like are you saying for, did you say that uh the chapo people are anti-yang yeah yeah they're, they're, yeah they're bernie they're bernie people right they're bernie people yeah right that's that's interesting um so we have a uh, super chat here from Spiced Demiurge throwing us five bucks. Thank you, my friend. Uh, do you think that UBI puts us in a similar situation to government employees? I'm neutral on UBI, by the way. It feels like a Band-Aid on a problem more than anything else. Um, yeah, I don't think that UBI is the solution to like all problems, but I think that it would do a lot for a lot of people. Um uh, especially like people that were ostensibly supposed to be benefited by the, like the Trump presidency, right? Like if you're talking about like the Rust Belt and things like that, this is like the sort of areas where like I'm from, from like a deindustrialized, like semi-rural area with a lot of like heroin overdoses and things. And that's absolutely, it would absolutely be a much better, uh, like it would be much better for their lives almost immediately. And then it's not like that's like the end all be all. You would hope eventually that this would create like a more, dynamic like local economies and things like that at least that's potentially possible um whereas like i don't know like what what other solutions are there i'm kind of a pragmatist so it's like i don't really think that everything's going to be solved like in a fell swoop but i think that this would just make the entire process of solving problems much better People i mean have I, more money to yeah. deal with i kind of i'm definitely partial to the idea of a basic income the basic logic behind it i'm definitely supportive of but I feel like this is one of those policies where the devil is really in the details because there are many ways that you could implement it in which it would some, be somewhere between not actually having much of an effect and also, or possibly being, being like quite uh, perverse and uh, you know, kind of linked into, you know, the control society and totalitarian shit. Uh, yeah. So yeah, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'd like that to know exactly how, how, it, how it would be. How, what the policy would be. And my, my fear is, or my sense is that almost any bill that can get through Washington just gets so fucked up that it's, it's never very good. <laughs> yeah. I think that, um, he, he wants, it would be like an, like, I feel like he has the written out version on his, uh, his camp on his site, but I, I support it over what I feel like will be the inevitable UBI, which will get voted in, which I think will be almost definitely, tied like tied almost nearly almost nearly definitely to a sort of like racial re, uh, reparations type program in the future and i feel like because it would be cheaper to only give money to minority populations than to give it to everyone you think so that I, you think they're gonna you think that's gonna be they're gonna they're gonna make ubi conditional on race 
I think they would in the future. Mm. Interesting. I, like, or something similar like that, or it would just be like tied to like a social credit system, like a Chinese style social credit system or something like that. I would feel like would be the inevitable um, version of it. If it doesn't get instituted by someone who wants to make it like universal and no questions asked. Right. Well, it, it's, it's pretty hard to imagine that anything could get through Congress that would be like truly unconditional, right? Like the idea that there wouldn't be good, you know, a kind of some set of good behavior conditions is kind of just, it's hard to imagine that. Right. And so then, well, that's the entire appeal. Like if it doesn't have that, then it's not what it is. Right. But what I'm saying is we could, we could vote Andrew Yang into power uh, on this like single issue platform. And still the UBI that we get is not the UBI that he offers and, or that he promises. And that, and it's something like, uh, somewhere between lame and, and actively perverse. You know what I mean? Like that, that just seems quite probable to me. So it's like hard for me to get to, I feel like anyone who's like genuinely really excited about, um, the, the UBI policy. I mean, I love the memes. I think the memes are hilarious and like all this stuff around the thousand bucks. Uh, it, it's really high quality stuff, uh, aesthetically and, and sociologically. But uh, if anyone, if anyone going yang yang really has their heart invested in, um, this like, uh, a robust kind of, uh, UBI policy coming through, I would say that's probably just naive, right? Possibly. But I feel like if the meme spreads enough that, and like the, the arguments for it being like the way that it is set up, which I feel like are like pretty reasonable. I feel like almost nobody, like, I feel like people understand the general logic behind it being like universal as opposed to like purely, uh, like need based or whatever. Right. Um, right. Well, I definitely, I definitely have more faith in a UBI possibly being successful than like all the socialist big state shit that people propose from like the DSA angles. Yeah. I also just don't think that like those huge, like I'm more, I'm not really like a state socialist. Like I wouldn't, I would say that I'm like a socialist to a certain degree because I'm not like an ardent, like pure capitalist, but I do think markets are generally better for some things than others. So I feel like just like a distributed market, like in which more consumers have money for like local goods and whatnot, as opposed to like buying necessarily always from like huge retailers. Cause there's no, money in like the community to like make like something like a bakery or something survive right that it it would probably be better for the long term a lot of the socialists like don't like the idea of like small businesses or upstarts right and i feel like that's what sort of differentiates the more like punk ethos from a lot of socialist production is that like socialist production would be like having like you know state organized like one music label or something like that you know what i mean Right, right. So we just got a big super chat from Brenton Milne, uh, throwing in a hundred bucks, uh, apparently in strong support of UBI, because all Brenton has to say with his hundred dollar contribution here is, imagine this every three days, 10 times each month. Very powerful statement in favor of uh, UBI. Thank you, Brenton. I, I appreciate that. It's true. I mean, there's something just... Uh, undeniably attractive about just unconditional cash payments. People, people get excited about that for sure. Yeah. I feel like they should like if politics is about getting like materials. So people need like, I feel like direct deposits of money is probably the most efficient way to do that. Definitely. Maybe 
Maybe we can. Maybe I can think of. Uh, no, I was going to make some. Uh, I was going to make some bad joke about YouTube. I'm going to. I'm going to dodge that. Um, all right. Let's see if there are other other questions. People are. Hair uh, might making fun of my face. Um, someone says the most interesting part of UBI is that secondary cities would maybe grow workers movement programs, etc. Yeah, I, I I agree with that. I think it could. Um, well, obviously, one huge argument in favor of it is that it's a huge boon to kind of independent culture, right? Like the all the great counterculture periods, right, were often more or less kind of fueled by the dole, right? Like the Beatles were on the dole. Lots of other, lots of other like great uh, artists of, of 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 every variety usually were were getting some kind of money from the state. So I think you could definitely see a, a kind of cultural renaissance. That I that's kind of personally what kind of attracts me about it most, I think. Yeah, I agree. I agree a hundred percent. But if you think about like cultural Renaissance, like that just is like for artisans in general, like I don't even think it necessarily has to be like to think of it from, from like a, uh, like music perspective or like a literature perspective, but from like, you know, like a baker or like any of these small, like more artisan based industries, they only currently exist in like enclaves where people have like too much money generally and like the hipster like gentrification zones but like there used to be these sorts of institutions and all scattered all across but like when's the last time you saw like a small town bakery like they're not around too frequently in my experience in america at least right right i think that's that's a good point uh brenton says i wonder if we would see massive expansion in housing and lifestyle arrangements configured to the ubi income it's a good question uh, like would people use this money to uh, be more creative with how they live and I guess buying houses or, or creating interesting types of, of living arrangements. I mean, not to be a wet blanket, but one possible outcome is that the results are actually, the cultural results are actually kind of underwhelming because most people are in debt and have, uh, you know, a hard time just staying afloat. So the thousand dollars would for most people, uh, just basically make their life slightly less hellish, but wouldn't really be a level changer in terms of uh, their lifestyle. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people like debt, but like paying off your debt is like huge issue for most people of these course. days. Yeah, yeah. So I, I feel like you know, even if that's the only improvement, it's still a better improvement than like I don't know, giving minimum wage. Like all these people, like these socialists who are obsessed with like minimum wage legislation, when it's like all that's going to do literally is like drive, like it's just going to result in firings. Like, it, I don't know. I don't really see how like raising the minimum wage would solve any of the issues that we currently have. Right. Well, it's definitely a, not very exciting compared to the thousand dollars a month. Exactly. And also a thousand dollars, a thousand dollars a month would be more of a raise than what most of the minimum wage suggestions are. Right. I feel like, I feel like Brenton Milne just uh psyoped me real hard because with this hundred dollars super chat, which by the way is, I think by far the, the biggest super chat I've ever uh, been given, I'm just looking at this one hundred dollar symbol in bright red on my on my computer screen, and I'm just looking at it, thinking, "Wow, hundred dollars! Wow!" And now I feel like maybe that was enough to push me over the edge, and now I'm I'm going to be hardcore Yang Gang just thinking about this hundred dollars times ten. So, Times twelve. Yeah, right. What am I saying? So, 
I think I might have just been uh, yang pilled by, yeah. by Brenton Milne. Maybe if you want to, if you want to uh, radicalize all of uh, the YouTubers in favor of Andrew Yang, just go around giving really generous super chats. Uh, this was literally my. Uh, I came up. With, I came up with an advertising campaign for something like that. Like I kind of want to work for the campaign, honestly. Like shouts out if they're fucking listening to me, because I feel like I have good ideas to advertise it. Um, I think I would like Twitch donations and things like that. I think would be perfect. Like yeah. say, like say he adopted like a smaller streamer and he donated a thousand dollars like every month. Right, I feel like that because then you'd actually see the live stream difference in people's lives. Like he's running this kit, this sort of idea with like families in New Hampshire and I- Iowa because they're oh, yeah. like the important primary people. So he's giving like select families like a thousand dollars a month, or like I think there's only like two or three of them to like you know do like his own little experiment. I'm like, does this make you happier? It's like shock, shocking result is it does. Turns out people like getting a thousand dollars a month. But right. I, I feel like it's like a, something that pretty much everyone could get behind and it could actually be like a good thing for the country at this point, as opposed to like, we're basically like accelerating towards a civil war. So I don't really know what other solutions there would be. Well, it's really interesting to think about how it might, how it might kind of reconfigure the left and the right, because if the Bernie bros uh, really double down against UBI in favor of their like minimum wage and state socialism shit, then no doubt a certain faction of the left is going to go with the thousand dollars over that. And so in a weird way, in a weird way, you might have like uh, a good chunk of the left joining forces with uh, a good chunk of the right, especially kind of the alt right. And uh, cause I'm, I'm like still pretty much a left, a left leaning kind of guy mostly. Um, so, yeah, I wonder, I, it would be really interesting to see how UBI kind of also converges with this, like, free speech cleavage that we're seeing. Um, yeah. Um, I also just think that they're kind of short-sighted because I feel like $1,000 a month would make their other goals, like, their goals shouldn't be, like, like federal minimum wage, but should be more, like, unionization of workers and things that exist. And the biggest, like, if every worker had $1,000 a month, like, you've literally got, like, however ma- that times however many workers you have as like a basic level of like strike wages. So you could like do accomplish much more of like the ostensibly like old left, like goals under this system than you could without. So I just feel like they're all very short sighted. Yeah. You know what I think is probably one of the real culprits as to why a lot of the establishment left might not be interested in UBI is because most of the establishment left they don't like things that actually empower individuals to like leave left-wing groups. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, like, yeah, true. You know what I mean? Like the, the left, a lot of the left wants it's, it's kind of like organizational control over, over members. Right. So like, think about it. If you're, if you're kind of, if you've given your life or several years of your life to building up the DSA, for instance, and you're kind of like a high ranking member in the DSA, you know, uh, or if you have a famous podcast, uh, a lot of the, uh, you know, cultural capital of which comes from your position in the DSA and your and your bona fides in that particular kind of political ideological subculture, then you have a very vested interest in the masses not getting enough cash that they need in some sense. Like if the masses were to get uh, a good uh, cash injection and became, uh, you know, less less needy on on organizations, you actually it could be good for the 
wide majority of individuals and and the masses and the workers. Um, and yet, you know, you're gonna you're gonna have a hard time supporting that because it, it basically kind of undercuts uh, everything that you've based yourself on. Yeah, it's like the I was I was trying to make a take about it regarding like the attention economy, mm-hmm. where if like they suddenly have like you know if people are like happier, feeling like less immiserated and alienated or whatever, then they'd probably have less attention. So and that's what drives like their relevancy and their income. So in the attention economy, they're making a totally like correct stance, but it's not really it's that's like the difference between like the cultural economy, I guess, of a signs and relevancy and attention versus like the uh, material one. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's very interesting. And also someone is making a point about this in the chat about how uh, another big question is what they're going to do with the rest of the welfare state. Right. So is it like going to be a trade where UBI, we get UBI, but everything else gets cut. I mean, frankly, if the UBI was big enough, I would kind of support that. Uh, I guess the, the fear is that it would be a uh, kind of on net, uh, a kind of regressive welfare loss, but, uh, you know, th- well, these- if you really think about it, right. So you, the idea is that you only opt into it if you're getting less than that from your benefits already, because then it wouldn't be like an increase. But if you're tying that also with like single payer healthcare, that pretty much covers like the majority of what the welfare, like what welfare funds are for, or like how much is being paid out. Right. Mm-hmm. So, right. Right. I, I but, but like, it's also not a, like the way I was also trying to put it is that it's not just like, it's not just like you only need to give money to poor people in order to improve poor people's lives, but like you need to give it to like everyone around them as well. Because if everyone around you has like more money, then it's better for you also, because they're also like more likely to like look after you and whatnot. If they have the money to do that, they're probably more like, like more likely like support local things, you know, it, it would just be an improvement for everyone as opposed to like we have these like this sort of like con- this idea of like programming by like advertising like pinpoint accuracy to things as opposed to doing like universal solutions i think which is like a, a pretty big problem like if you're like we're only going to give people uh money if they follow like xyz criteria or whatever mm-hmm. that might actually be causing more problems than just like giving to a like using the shotgun approach i guess Right. Right. I mean, part of me thinks that the America is just not ready to vote for an Asian man. Like America would much sooner vote for a black man than an Asian man. I feel like, I don't know, man. I feel like, I feel like the biggest importance of the Donald Trump presidency is that like a brick was thrown through the consensus reality of what was possible. That's true. And now, now like anything's possible. You could like people, like people are going to be rebuilding like from the fragments of the party system and just like the like tele television media dominance. Um, we're going to like rebuild new things. I forgot to ask, by the way, this reminds me, what do you do for money anyway? Um, I, I was working like an office job for a while when I was in New York, but I was saving up money. So I'd have time to write. And so then I was just writing without working. Um, I'm looking for like a kind of like part-time job now, I guess I'm just going to go back to like doing boring manual labor. Like I used to, but yeah. I used to work in my office job actually got automated, which is funny to me. Like I was basically helping it be automated. So I didn't really, I could have like moved positions or whatever in that company, but I hated working in an office so much. Do you have takes on Cody Wilson? Someone's asking about that. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm uh, I'm a big fan of Cody. Like, obviously, not what he's charged with, but like, uh, he was very influential to me when I was younger, and like, because he's also in that sort of like, he was like the crypt in the crypto anarchist circles and stuff. So like, I was interested in Bitcoin and all that, and I'm very much like a Second Amendment person. Like, I think that, um, and uh, and like First Amendment person. So I was very interested in his stuff. I think that like, you know, he was fucking got, got like a dummy. Like he, like he knew people were after him and he did some dumb shit. So that's what happens sometimes. What's his status right now? Is he in jail? Um, I think he's like, I don't know if he's in jail or if he's on bail, but his case is still being tried. I'm pretty sure. I talked to someone who knew more not too long ago, but they didn't know much more than that. Dude, did I read right that, that uh, Lori Laughlin woman who is going to jail? for bribing which one i don't know any i don't know oh yeah have you been following this kind of scandal around uh you know rich people parents bribing uh to get oh. into colleges yeah i mean I, I i mean i feel like everyone knew that like implicitly <laughs> but, right right but, right but, it, but it's like a big legal case now and, and if i i think i if i read correctly for once like rich famous people are actually going to go to jail I, I i think but like Lori laughlin uh She's one of the people from Full House. Remember that show, Full House? Um, oh shit! I had yeah. no idea who you were talking about. But I, yeah, I think if I read correctly, she's out on like a million dollar bail or something like that. But it looks like she's going to go down. See, that's nice. That that brings like a nice like little cheer to my heart is to see rich people go to jail. Well, I would I would never celebrate anyone else's suffering, but I suspect that it'll be like one of those like really cushy, nice prisons for rich people. Uh, of course, of course. I just mean like. You know, we did, we haven't had, we didn't have enough of that in like 2008. I feel like I need my uh, my payback. <laughs> are you a um, are you religious at all? I would say so. Other people would say not. So I don't really know. Like I don't really I don't like go to church. I'm not like a member of a church, but I'm very interested in these sorts of things. I take Christianity like very seriously, which is why I have the opinions I do. Right. So like Christian, or what's your background or attitude there? Yeah, I just think I just think that uh, like the Christian mythos is like the deepest. I think, um, and it is the most. It's like the most interested in other ones. Like uh, the whole like Christian worldview was built up off of like being able to interpret like all things. So they would like take like pagan stuff for you know they had like or would compile um, when they went to like China and stuff, or you know they'd try to like figure out what other people were doing. They usually were just to like show how they were wrong, you know, but uh, they preserved a lot of stuff anyway, which I find right. interesting. Right. Um, plus, I don't know. I feel like we're like, we're all steeped in that. So it's Definitely. like the, the most powerful one. Definitely. So I'll let you go in just a minute, but I think a good way to close this is I'm curious to hear what's your, what's your larger vision specifically around, um, you know, your kind of independent intellectual career, because this is something I'm thinking a lot about right now and talking a lot about. And uh, I'm curious to know how you see your next few projects and, and how, how you plan on. So both in terms of um, the projects that you, that you want to work on over the next few years, like what the content of those projects, but also I'm curious to hear um, if you have uh, much of a kind of game plan or, or projection around how you plan on, on hacking that from a kind of strategic, uh, productive um, angle. Yeah. I, th I'm, I'm thinking about doing more, like getting into like video stuff 
Um, I yeah. just don't have like the equipment to, so I'm waiting for like my money from like my book to come in so that I can like get more into that. Uh, cause I, I have like, I, I, I used to do a lot of video editing and stuff, so I'm not really like a total noob at that stuff, but I have some ideas for like some like video essay type stuff to do. Um, but for, I'm mostly interested in like writing fiction, honestly. So that's like my long-term goal is like, I have another book already in mind that I want to write for fiction, but I think the next thing I'm going to write is going to be like more nonfiction stuff and probably compiling like a selected amount of my like Twitter archive to put into it. Um, but right that's now. like the, the projects I have in mind. I have like a podcast in discussions with, I'm not going to like say it's going to happen yet or anything, but I think it's like a funny idea. So that might happen or not. Cool. But it'd be basically like me teaching someone how to read. So we'd be like doing week by week, like, like entry level books and then like trying to like get deeper into stuff. Interesting. What do you mean teaching how to read? Like do it like, like, like deep studies. Like someone of, who hasn't like has someone who hasn't like read a lot and is like trying to get into reading, but like from like a later stage in life. So like they wouldn't know where to start, you know? Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that's cool. Interesting. Well, that, that all sounds cool. Definitely for sure. I, de- I mean, I definitely think it's good to um, develop like a couple, like more than one platform. But as someone who's done this, uh, you know, for quite a while now and with some success, I mean, there, there are definitely trade-offs. Like I, I, I'm starting to think that I might be spread a little too thin, uh, because you know, my, my main kind of work and, uh, my, my, my own intentions and and goals are still also based on writing and, and doing, uh, yeah, writing based work. And now that I do all these things like the podcast and the live stream and stuff, like it's great because it does, it, it gets me way more readers. Um, so it will pay off for my books in the long run, but it is, it is like quite uh, time consuming to do all these different things. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you might, you know, you're probably wise for not jumping into all these different platforms too quickly. Like it'll, it'll probably be worthwhile to do, but beware how time consuming it is. And it, it oh, will, no. yeah, it will, it I know. will take you away from, from writing at least while you're setting stuff up yeah that's why like i really tried to like do as little um as possible like otherwise like i was still on twitter for a bit but i was taking like a lot of like long breaks from it um when i was writing the book because i was just trying to put like all of my efforts into that uh i worked on it like really hard so and people have been enjoying it almost that most of the people who have like disliked it i found haven't actually read the whole thing so yeah. i feel like if they had stuck with it they might have found something more that they would have enjoyed than if they like dropped it after the first 10 pages, but you know, so it goes, uh, I, uh, so like, I don't know, ultimately I want to be writing fiction stuff, but I think it's just a fact like nowadays that you have to like remind people that you exist. Cause like, if you just put out like a book and then like spent another year writing another one and toss it out there, people probably would have forgot that you existed. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, one thing I would share with you is that I have found, there are also positive, you know, to use a kind of corny word, synergies or whatever, kind of positive symbiotic relationships or, or you know, positive feedbacks really between the different platforms, you know? So like in, in a way it's been, a, it's been very time consuming to kind of like build up the YouTube and build up a podcast and stuff like that. And it's, it's time consuming each week to do those things, but in, it is kind of cool how over time, like the podcast gets more, readers on the blog and then because the blog gets more readers then the, the youtube gets more viewers and stuff so there are it is kind of cool how how they do kind of uh you know uh, accelerate each other not to use a, a 
corny way, yeah. way to phrase it. But uh, yeah, so I do think that it, there are actually, um, in the long run, there are multiplicative uh, uh, positive yeah. as well. I think everyone has to be multimedia now, which I think that most like artists have realized, like even musicians and stuff, like they're all very into like multimedia at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't want to keep you longer than you have. So um, you're, you're, yeah. free to go. you're free to go. It was fun talking with you, man. Yeah, it's fun talking with you. Everyone, buy my book, Selfie Suicide, available now, Amazon.com, Logo Daedalus. Peace out, everyone. All right. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you thought that was cool, then don't forget to subscribe, and it would be even cooler if you left a review. I'd appreciate that. And yeah, just to learn more about what I'm up to, you can check out theotherlifenow.com. That's all. And I will see you around the internet.